Welcome to Transforming Lives with Michael Carter, pastor of The Life Church. The Life Church is a place where you'll enjoy interactive dynamic worship, prayer, and a very practical, down-to-earth yet spiritual message. Our service times are Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and Wednesday night reboot at 6.45 p.m. Visit us at mychurchlife.org or on Facebook. Just search My Church Life and look for The Life Church. Now, let's join Pastor Mike. Here we go. Last week, we took a hard look at adversity, right? And everybody remember that from last week? We discussed Paul and his chains and very much discussed how even in his chains, he was confident that the gospel was going to go out. He even seeing it go out for the wrong reasons, but the gospel was still being preached. And that is his joy, is that the gospel is still going forth. For us, adversity can be a bad word. And it's a shame that we consider adversity a bad word, because adversity can and should be used to our advantage. Paul does a wonderful job of using his own situation in Rome to encourage the Philippians. And eventually, you and I, through over the time that the the New Testament was maintained, and finally it gets into our hands, and we open up the book of Philippians, and he says, I'm in chains, but the gospel still goes forth. We can take comfort that no matter what we've got going on in our lives, whether we are in chains, struggling with work, struggling with life, the gospel can still go forward. He, Pastor Mike talked a little bit about football last week. Everybody knows he's a big football and sports guy in general. I don't think it's just football. Am I right, Ms. Pastor Dietrich? He likes sports. Um, he, what's that? Everything. I, I, I can't handle all the sports. I was born and raised here in Indiana. I can't handle basketball. It's, I just cannot handle watching basketball. Those of you who are basketball fans, I am sorry. I was born and raised here. I do not like basketball or racing. <laughs> um, so he talked last week a little bit about uh, the, the coach up in the press box, up in the top, right? And the quarterback, he throws an interception, and he throws a bad, there's a bad series of plays, and you see him sitting there on the sidelines, and he used to be on one of those phones with a cord. Anybody remember those things? Nowadays, he's probably on some sort of wireless headset and talking back and forth with the coach up in the press box, right? Well, that coach in the press box has a unique perspective that the quarterback on the field can't see. When you're on the field and you're in the mess and you're playing the game, you can only see what's in front of you. But the, the, the coach up here, he can see everything that's going on. He's like, hey, you, you need to look out for this. And you need to look out for this. And if you see this, throw the ball that way. Or if you see them starting to line up in this formation, that's actually a strong pass defense. You need to run, run the football. And a lot of times, the quarterbacks will change the play on the field depending on what the defense shows them, right? I know if you're not a big football fan, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <clears throat> God is trying to do that exact same thing with us. God is at that press box. Actually, no, I'm sorry. God is so much higher than that press box in his perspective that the universe, the press box, the field, everything is inside of his view. And he sees from the beginning of this universe to the end of this universe at the same moment. Do not ask me how that works because my brain can't understand that. But our God can see everything from the end of the beginning all the time. And 
He is trying to give us that big picture if we'll sit down and listen to him. Um, that is the challenge of a Christian life. Our problem as believers is not really our circumstances, but our perspective. So many times, we don't want to listen to God and his perspective, but we want to listen and, and only view things from our perspective. Well, God, this is going on. And, and, and this, my work is possibly going away, and I've got this bill, and I've got this thing going on, and blah, da, 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 da. And in, in the end, we have not asked him to show us things from his perspective. But we've just sat there and talked with him about our perspective. And our perspective doesn't do us a whole lot of good. The vantage point from which we view our situations will ultimately determine whether we have joy or discouragement. I'm going to repeat that. The vantage point from which we view our situations will determine whether we have joy or discouragement. To have joy, we must find a way to see the field from God's perspective. Then we will understand that God is bigger than our circumstances. God's perspective will give us great joy even in the midst of problems and adversity. Anybody remember what Pastor Mike's theme for the book of Philippians was? Anybody? It's okay. Um, not necessarily. Living your faith is, is, is a good option. In fact, I love this whole series because what's the point in having our faith if we're not going to live our faith? But his theme is summed up in it is the joy of Christian life and service manifest under all circumstances. Joy in Christian life manifest under all circumstances. That means when the bank account is full and you are healthy and the cars are running right and there's no problems, you can have joy. But when the bank account is negative and everything is broken and you can't even make it to work, if you are holding the right perspective, you can still have joy. And I know it sounds like a long shot, but it's true. It's true. So... Pastor Mike, and, and I love this, he doesn't just look at the verses, but let's look at some of the background from the, the city of Philippi, shall we? And he gives you a little bit more each week. Just, you know, not give you everything all up at once, but make you want more so you can come back, right? It, right? <clears throat> so, historically, Philippi was a Greek city named after Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It is located in the northern part of what is modern Greece, near the coast of the Aegean Sea. It is a Roman colony, or at least it was anyway. There's no Roman Empire now, so it's not really a Roman colony now. Um, it, is a fairly, it had a fairly large population, and it was a, an important gold mining town. So they were wealthy. These people had the money. It was the home of many pagan religions and influences. Um, Pastor Mike also has three in spite ofs from this book that, are, that bear repeating. Paul experiences joyfulness in spite of his chains. Paul experiences joyfulness in spite of the opposition. And Paul experiences joyfulness in spite of facing death. 
So, can we get to the meat of this thing now? You're like, okay, we're done with the front matter. Let's get on to this thing. So, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 27, and we're going to end in chapter 2, verse 4. And if you're one of those who doesn't have a Bible on you, either paper or electronic, these verses will be on the screens for you. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 2, verse 4. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God, for you, to it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you, each of us, and I'm talking to myself here, look not only out to your own interests or to his own interests or to her own interests, but also to the interest of the others. <clears throat> In verse 27, Paul tells the Philippian church to let their conduct be worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Any thoughts? I'm a youth pastor. I mean, I'm okay with people shouting answers out to me, even here. What are some things that you think show that you're walking and living worthy of the gospel? Love. I mean, top notch right there, right? Hit it right off the bat. What else? What's that? Faith. Sorry. For some reason, I just couldn't understand that. Maybe I'm going deaf. No, I'm not. I'm not claiming that by any stretch of the imagination. What else? We got love and we got faith. Actions. What else I hear? Mercy. What else we got? Kindness. Conflict. Ooh, boy. We don't like that word, do we? Conflict. But is it not true? What else? Can we get a couple more? Integrity. Ooh. We don't always like that word either. Because a lot of times that means we have to do things we don't want to. Hmm. What else? One more thing. Compassion. Yes. Yes. If you are producing these things, if you are doing these things, and then walking worthy of the gospel. Can I throw in a few more real practical things here real quick? Open up the word of God and read it. Pray. Come to church. All of you are here. Thank you. What'd you just say? <laughs> Even on Wednesday. Yes. Spoken by a guy who was here faithfully on Wednesday nights. Um, and then, as we heard, action. 
Your faith without action is dead, according to the book of James. Not my words, God's words, through James. <clears throat> the command may be taken broadly, as we've seen, but Paul's specific concern was to be unified in our stance for the gospel. Paul is not speaking here of how we act toward... Paul was not just speaking here of how we act toward others, but that we present the gospel in unity. How, 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 how can we present the gospel in unity unless we gather together on a regular basis? If we are not together on a weekly basis, at least, how can we be in unity at all? And that's a key theme in this section of Philippians is unity, like-mindedness. It's nearly impossible for us. And not just to be in unity with each other, but to be in unity with God. He expects us to come together. Can I be honest with you? I hope I can. In the time that this is written, we find out that the disciples were meeting almost daily together. And yet we struggle to get together one or two days a week. And, can, and I'll be completely transparent, I struggle with that some days too. There are some Sunday mornings I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be here some days. There's some days that on Wednesdays I get done at work and I'm like, I really don't want to drive down from Indianapolis the third day this week, some weeks. And I'm like, can I just skip? And of course, the Holy Spirit's like, no. You have a job to do for me. And are you going to do it with joy or grudgingly? But one way or the other, you're going to do it. And most days I do it with joy. Even on the days that I'm like, I don't want to be there. You know, he speaks to me and I'm like, you're right. I need to be there. Help me change my attitude so that I can show up in joy. There are some days, though, that I, I'm like, I'm here. I am not in a right headspace, but I'm here. And on those days, God had gives me special uh, consideration. And still, hopefully, none of you guys notice those days. So that you don't know what's going on inside my head. Not because I'm trying to hide things, but so that you can be encouraged by my presence. So, I think I may have dropped, drifted off topic just a touch. So, verse 27, so that whether we see you again or not, I will keep on hearing good reports that you are standing side by side with one strong purpose to tell the good news. It's a different translation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Boy, that's a big one. With peace. It's one thing to be together. But if we come together and there is nothing but strife, is the gospel being preached? If we come together and we can't get along, but we're here grudgingly every week, is the gospel going forth? I think the answer is probably no. <clears throat> First John 4.12 No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. When all the members in the church are in one spirit with one soul, oneness will be 
convincing, subduing, and attractive. It will convince us that it's the right thing for us to do. It will subdue those things that try to tear us apart. And it will become attractive not only to us to get together more and more in fellowship and gathering for the word, but it will be attractive to those outside as they come to and see that they need what we've got. And that can transpose itself into our individual lives also. If we are in one mind and one accord here, then we can carry that with us as we go out to work or to school or to any of those places that we go out. When all the members in the church are in one... Uh, I've read that. My apologies. The church at Rome stood for the gospel, but there was no unity. And it hurt its witness. The Philippians had the opportunity to witness to the world by their unified stand for the gospel. This, was, this would be particularly impressive if they stood strong through the sufferings they were called to endure. What does it mean? Rome was a, had a church, and at one point it was a mix of Gentiles and Jews. But at one point, early in the history, the Jewish people were kicked out of the city of Rome. The church continued, but it was Gentile only, because there were no Jews in the city. After a time, as is common with political structures, a new emperor rose up. He allowed the Jews to come back into the city, but what did the, Jew, what did the Christian Jews find? They found a church that was not like what they had left. And now we had a church that had Jews and Gentiles, but they were not of like mind anymore. And there was strife, and it hurt the witness of the church in, the, in Rome. <clears throat> Verse 28 to 30, Paul emphasized courage in the face of adversity. Last week we talked about it, so we're not going to go too deep into adversity this week. However, it is noted that the suffering Paul is talking about is because of the gospel. Because of the gospel... Not because of something else going on, but because he is preaching the gospel, he is suffering. Let us not confuse needless suffering that doesn't benefit the gospel of Christ to be biblical and pleasing to God. Let me say that again. Let us not confuse needless suffering that doesn't benefit the gospel of Christ to be biblical and pleasing to God. Although Paul speaks here of suffering... In reality, to suffer for the sake of Christ is to enjoy Him in the face of trials. When we suffer for Christ's sake in the preaching of the gospel, we enjoy Him. When we cause our own suffering, eh, not so much. So, why do Christians suffer for the gospel? Why do we go through persecution? One, to encourage others. To build compassion. So many times we have to suffer something so that we can have compassion on those who've gone through it. Because if you have not gone through it, you are not going to fully understand what they're going through. Addiction, physical stress, mental stress, job loss. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, it's okay, brother. God will God'll bring you through if we've never suffered it ourselves. We've never seen it ourselves. But boy, when you've been through something like that, you have real compassion on those people. Because of the word, we suffer because of the word. 
And it's real easy in society to go out and suffer for the word because people don't want to accept what the word of God says. And to be honest, so many times we go about telling people of the word in the wrong way. You know, if they're not believers in Christ, if they're not Christians, they have no desire to follow the word and the moral code that we subscribe to. So instead of bashing them over the heads with our moral code, we should be pointing them to Christ. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus can help you, whatever you're going through. And then let him clean them up. Let him deal with their moral failures, like he's dealing with our moral failures. I wish I could say that after all these years, and it's, it's been over a decade that I've been a Christian, that I was no longer a moral failure. But I'll be honest with you, there are days that I am a complete disaster. But because of grace, he is still on my side. <clears throat> we suffer in persecution because we are living in this world. We, uh, he has not pulled us out yet. We're here today at the Life Church on a Sunday morning. That means we're still living in this world. And you know what? Sunday is here. But Monday is coming right around the corner and many of us dread our Mondays because it's the world we're going to be seeing. Boy, if we could change our perspective instead of, oh, I don't want to do that again, see that from God's point of view, man, there are some people there that need help. Why do Christians go through needless suffering? So before the top four were we suffer persecution for good reasons. And each of those reasons should bring us joy to be in his presence. Because when we go through trials and sufferings, Jesus is there. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We go through needless suffering because of a lack of knowledge of the word of God. If we don't ever open up our Bibles and read them and understand them and try to see what is going on in that book then we have no knowledge and we suffer needlessly because of it. <clears throat> Disobedience to the word of God. Ouch. The first one was, you know, sheer ignorance. We just don't know. It's available to us. There's no reason for us to be ignorant. And ignorance is not a bad word. It just means you don't know. Not knowing is okay. Remaining that way is not. But in this case... You know what is good, and you go the other direction. And boy, how do we do that as Christians? Boy, howdy. It's not good. I'm just as guilty, by the way. I'm not throwing stones. This, uh, preparing for this, I have been in the mirror more than I like to, you know, acknowledge some days. The Word of God is a mirror, and it shows me so many times where I have Falled and failed, and I'm a mess. <clears throat> Get ready for this next one. We suffer through needless suffering because of arrogance. Arrogance. <clears throat> I know what I'm doing. I don't need your help. You don't have to tell me. I can figure this out on my own. Yeah, right. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep moving. <clears throat> so, as we continue reading through that verse, that, that section, 
there are four statements that are the basis of Paul's appeal to unity. And in case you haven't seen it, unity is the big term in this section of Scripture. Unity. If there's any consolation or comfort in Christ, we know that God comforts us in times of trouble. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 4. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father who shows, up, shows us loving kindness. And our God who gives us comfort. He gives us comfort in all of our troubles. Then we can comfort other people who have the same troubles. Wait a minute, didn't we just discuss uh, we go through suffering to learn compassion? Here we go. It's right there in the scriptures. <clears throat> We give the same kind of comfort that God gives us. If any comfort of love, again, that phrase comes back from Philippians 2. John 15, 9 agrees with it. says, I have loved you just as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love and do not doubt my love for you. The Amplified Bible says. That's Jesus talking to you, by the way. And he says that his love comes from the love of the Father to him. So if Jesus' love for us comes only from the Father, how can we expect to love other people if we're outside and not connected to Jesus? <clears throat> the next phrase out of Philippians 2 is, if there's any fellowship of the spirits. Again, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace... Favor and spiritual blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the presence and fellowship, which is the communion and sharing together and participation in the Holy Spirit be with you all. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the presence of fellowship. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if the Spirit isn't there, if we're not connected to the Holy Spirit, then we miss that fellowship. We can be here in body, but we miss something if we're just here in body and not here in spirit also. If any affection and mercy, Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy and unfailing love shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell forever in the house and in the presence of the Lord. Wow. Wow. Those four phrases, if we could really grab a hold of those, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if those four phrases could begin to really live and take root in our lives, we would have that true unity that Paul, that God expects us to have. Carlos Wallace, under no circumstances, is any proverbial player even more significant than the collective? Under no circumstances is any proverbial player, is no individual ever more significant than the collective. But when that works itself out fully in the gospel, the collective is never more important than the individual. When we're in true unity, we're not going to look to put down one or two people for the sake of the collective, but we're going to bring everyone together to the same level and let our collective be on the same 
on the same strata, same height. Even the weak become strong when they are united. Frederick von Schuyler. Not in numbers, but in unity, that our great strength lies. Thomas Paine. You listen to these, these quotes, and you listen to the scriptures, and boy, it, we all may be weak according to the world's point of view, but when we're in unity, nothing can stop us. What do the scriptures say? One shall put a thousand to flight, and two, ten thousand. Boy, if you continue that math, there's close to 55 people in this room right now. How many, peop how many of the enemy, of the adversary here in Bloomington could we put to flight if we began to really walk and pray and act in unity? That's not by no means a condemnation against our congregation. I love you guys. But think about that. Think about that. Like-mindedness is true biblical unity only occurs when individuals in the church are like-minded. The content of his exhortation is that we be like-minded. The verb here used for like-mindedness occurs ten times in the book of Philippians. Ten times he exhorts us to be like-minded. It speaks to the intellect, our way of thinking, our minds. The battlefield starts here, individually and corporately as our group. But it goes beyond that. It incorporates the will and the emotions for a comprehensive outlook which affects our attitudes. Wow. We can be in like mind mentally. Yeah, we should go do that. But boy, if we're not in like mind with our will and our emotions, does it get done? Does it get done? True biblical like-mindedness is not just our minds, but our heart. And our actions will reflect when our hearts and our minds are in one. With this word, in the context in which it occurs... Paul spoke of the values and ambitions which surface through the mind. This is unity. It is not found in an identical lifestyle or personality. Thank God. Because y'all don't want to have my personality. You don't want to know some of the thoughts that run through my head. Good and bad. Because my brain just is firing all the time on weird things. It's just, that's who I am. You don't want, you don't want that. And I don't want you to be that way. I like you guys as you are, for the most part. We, we can be more effective if we come together in unity, taking into account our different personality types. Not everybody is the same. But the body isn't supposed to be a, made up of a bunch of the same things. I may be a hand, I may be the toenail. I don't know, but you're a different part. But when our personalities and our minds and our emotions begin to work together, that body starts to get up and be active. 
Unity occurs when Christian people have the same values and love. When what we love is the same. When we love God and when we love others, I mean truly love God and love others, we'll start to stand, step out and do those things. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Brothers and sisters, I encourage all of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to agree with each other and not to split into opposing groups. I want you to be united in your understanding and your opinions. That's the good word, God's word translation. Boy, the church is, the church, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking capital C church, the, the unified, or the global church, if you will, really needs to listen to this verse. Because we can't even agree on some of the major things as a whole. What does it take to be saved? What does it mean for baptism? What does it mean for eternity? And we wonder so many times why the church is in the mess it's in. Why the world is in the mess it's in when the church is not doing its part. Wow. 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 Let me wrap this up. I hope, I pray, that you all have been given things to think about. And I hope, my prayer, is not that you'll walk out of here beaten. Oh, we can never do those things. No. That's the enemy talking. We live, we work for a God who is greater than everything that we could face. And that includes being disheartened or broken. Sometimes brokenness can be a good thing. Adversity can be used as a good thing. God can use our afflictions to, for, to further the gospel and exalt his name. Because of this, we should live thankful lives in the face of our own afflictions and strive to be like-minded in unity despite our differences. Let's end with four things to take as an exhortation. Because I don't want you walking out of here disappointed or feeling abused. Because that is not by any stretch God's purpose. <clears throat> Number one, rest in the fact that God is with you in the midst of your difficulties. God is with you always. Ask God to help you see his vantage point in your circumstances. We've talked a lot about the unity of the church, but that starts with us. That starts with us seeing things from God's viewpoint. Hold to a steady course in the midst of perplexing problems by trusting God. Don't, don't veer off course. Don't deviate. Don't step right or left. Keep on going through whatever you're going through, knowing that God is with you. I cannot say it enough. He will never leave you or forsake you. When life hits you, he's standing right there. And instead of falling on the ground, fall on his grace. Fall on his mercy. Because he loves you. 
despite what you think sometimes. He loves you. Never, ever, ever let that go. Number four, thank, Christ, or thank God that a Christ-centered eternal perspective brings joy. Man, what's Paul writing one, in, in one of his uh, epistles? I can't remember which one. But the trials, the struggles, the tribulations of this age are nothing in compare to the joy that we have in front of us. Nothing. So again, I pray, I hope that you will take a look at your own lives, your own perspectives. Are you looking at things from your perspective or are you looking at things from God's perspective? Ask Him to show you things from His perspective.